0: I'm Lauren and I'm a veterinarian.
1: I'm JJ and I'm a veterinary technician. And
0: you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome everybody to IntroVets podcast. Today we have the therapist, fan favorite, Dana Hampson. Yay, Dana, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. Dana is a licensed professional counselor, and she is the owner of the Balanced Life LLC in Madison, Alabama. Today, we're going to go over some more scenarios and sort of pick up where we left off last season with a what would Dana do sort of episode. Just a reminder that we are not giving legal advice. We are also not giving medical advice for people on the podcast either <laughs> no no dana is going to walk us through uh, sort of how to deal with emotionally and mentally the situations that we might run into in day-to-day life as veterinary professionals and jj is going to lead us off
1: with the first problem boy do we have some doozies today we do <laughs> okay today is the fourth day this week that katie has spilled alcohol on a doctor's breath What's worse is that the doctor is the owner of the practice and the office manager is his wife. At first, Katie thought that maybe he had just had a small drink at lunch, but today he was a few hours late to work and he is visibly intoxicated. She feels very upset and anxious, but doesn't know who to turn to. Everybody loves this doctor and she's only been working at this practice for about three months. She feels it's an emergency to speak up, but she also feels frozen in fear.
0: That's a tough one. I guess I'll lead off on on this one and just say a couple things. I've done some research on the specific topic. So over the years, I've read a lot of threads on message boards, particularly on VIN, about this general topic of smelling alcohol on bosses or coworkers. And before reading some of those, I didn't really know that there are some medical conditions that can create. Breath that smells like alcohol or that even things like ketogenic diets or ketogenic diseases like diabetes can sometimes make breath smell that way. Also, some people do retain the smell of alcohol longer than others. Like, for example, they celebrated really hard the night before. They're no longer impaired, but the smell is still there. And then in one thread on VIN uh, that I read, the alcohol smell on multiple employees was ultimately found to be related to a new type of alcohol-based
1: hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah, and, we, we've got one that smells like margaritas pretty bad. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, really strong. It smells like everybody went to Rosie's over lunch and,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and had a big time. <laughs> yeah, This actually has just happened recently at one of the um, places that I do relief work for the AvaGard, for whatever reason, this batch just has like a crazy alcohol smell. So those sorts of things can happen. And I do think that you have to be cautious about assuming alcohol abuse or drinking during work hours based on like smell alone. But to me, this situation is different because the person seems impaired. And I think when a an employee or a boss, it doesn't matter any, anyone who's involved in providing medical care is impaired on the job, that's something that you have to report it like ASAP. I do think that all practices need to have a staff handbook that covers what to do in these sorts of situations, meaning like the chain of command for reporting things. And then you should always follow the laws in your state. So your practice act will probably have something that sort of outlines what to do. Dana, what do you think?
2: Well, there were a couple of things when I was reading over this that I noticed Um, that stood out to me. And I think, you know, if I were to be talking to Katie, let's say she maybe even processed this in a session, the statement, everyone loves this doctor and she's only been working at the practice for three months is interesting to me because she is already projecting outcomes Mm. um, that maybe they're not going to listen to me because everybody loves this doctor or what do I know? I've only been here three months. So she's either anticipating outcomes or just doubting her own credibility and the uh, willingness of people at the practice to listen to her. So, you know, I think that's, you know, if I'm an employee, you know, whether I'm working, let's so say I'm working with someone and she says this to me, I would want to examine where's that doubt coming from. But, you know, she's on the job being able to kind of talk herself through that, that it it really doesn't matter if everybody loves the doctor. If you really feel like this doctor is impaired, you have an ethical obligation And it also doesn't matter if you've been there three months or one day or 10 years. If you think someone's impaired, you have an ethical obligation. So, you know, I I know in the counseling profession, we have really strict ethical guidelines about uh, practitioner impairment. And so, you know, I'm not necessarily off the hook. If I go and tell, if I work, say, at Community Mental Health, then I go tell my boss or tell the HR manager I think somebody's high or I think somebody's drunk. I still have some obligation to follow through on that, so it's not like a oh I told somebody I'm I'm good because if that person, let's say the HR person didn't do anything, and then this this veterinarian, you know, performs a procedure and something goes terribly wrong because of the impairment, um, or someone really gets hurt, there's just a there's another level of kind of a ripple effect of consequences. So I don't know if it's the same in the probably I would imagine the veterinary profession. I I don't know if Depending on what Katie's job is, if she has the same obligation, or if she is technically off the hook once she reports it up, but I think certainly, regardless, she needs to say something to someone if she has a concern, and then she needs to trust that that person's going to investigate or do what they need to do to determine is it um, this person has been using some hand sanitizer, or um, you know, is on a diet that's causing the smell. I come I had a five year stint working in substance abuse. So I kind of come from the whole other side of that of seeing people who routinely were in treatment because of going to work impaired. Uh so I probably in a little more or maybe a little less lenient in my own thinking about that, that if, if my gut says this person's drunk or high, then I need to talk to somebody about it. I don't need to try to brush it under the rug and hope it's something else.
0: Yeah. To answer your question about like accountability legally in Alabama for sure veterinarians are like required reporters of that sort of thing and I JJ you can probably answer this question better than me but I believe that licensed technicians are as well yes as far as non credentialed staff members I don't think that there's the same sort of a legal compulsion to to report but I agree ethically yes like that <laughs> that should definitely
1: happen Yeah, I've had to report someone before, before Mm. I was a credentialed technician. Yeah. I can go into the story. It happened over 20 years ago, if you want, but... uh, As long as there's no identifying information. Okay. And keep in mind, this was in the 90s when things weren't done at the same standard that they are now. Um, The clinic I worked for had a bottle of alcohol that they used to fix slides. And I don't know how this bottle of alcohol was. It was kept kind of in the same area as the controlled drugs. I do know that there was some pretty gross things that was in the bottom of the bottle because <laughs> I had to use it to fix slides. And I was there on a weekend doing medications for borders and for you know hospitalized patients. And I walked in with another employee chugging that bottle like their life depended on it. Yeah. And I... <laughs> yes, it was. I was like, yeah, first of all, once. you got you got to be like, I mean, uh, so I had to track down the office manager and report it because I'm like, I can't, I can't not. I mean, I felt bad for the person because obviously, if they're that desperate for alcohol that they're going after that, then they obviously have a problem. But I also knew that if I'm going to be able to sleep at night, um, you know. I got to I got to tell somebody because that's that's not cool.
0: Dana, you brought up an interesting observation. The way that this circumstance is is phrased sort of indicates that the person writing it is maybe feeling just a little bit insecure, like maybe they won't be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that we can, uh, as veterinary professionals, sort of process those feelings and get past them in order to do the right thing?
2: I think the more um, we balance uh, or strike a really good balance between self-compassion and personal responsibility, we're going to navigate situations like this as smoothly as possible. I mean, this is a potentially a messy situation. Nobody wants to be in it. But once you're in it, then to me, being able to say, of course, I'm nervous about this. So this is the self-compassion part. Of course, this is this is a scary thing to have to do. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want people to be angry at me. I don't want to falsely accuse someone because that's that's also something that I think we need to take seriously. This is someone's professional reputation on the line. So I, I don't want to unnecessarily stir something up if I don't need to, but I need to be able to kind of acknowledge, of course, I have feelings about this, but... If my gut says this is something I need to report, then I do have a personal responsibility to do it, and I'm not responsible for how other people respond to this. So I am responsible for sharing that information as factually as possible, and that that's the extent of it, um, unless I need to report above, you know, if I have some obligation to report above the office manager or the HR director. So... you know, I I try to work with clients on that is that, you know, a lot of people have a whole lot of personal responsibility, but they're, you know, epically um, talented at beating themselves up. So the self-compassion part is is terrible. I also have seen people who are very self-compassionate. They're all about their feelings and all about kind of cutting themselves some slack. But then when it comes to the personal responsibility part, they don't have a whole lot of it. It's generally someone else's fault or someone else's responsibility. So to me, the healthiest, most adaptive grown-ups are the ones who strike a really good middle ground between those two basically, uh, I guess, personality traits or those personality qualities. So I have been, I guess, lucky in my career so far that
0: I have not had to report a colleague or have this experience, but certainly... I know of several instances, several acquaintances that have had to report other veterinarians and in a couple of cases, even their bosses. But just the number of personal stories that I have heard related to this topic makes me feel that this is a more common problem than we would suspect Mm -hmm. or hope Mm -hmm. for. One thing that I can say, at least in Alabama, is that the uh, Board of Veterinary Medical Examiners has established a wellness committee. So actually, when you renew your license every year, you have to check some boxes that say like, yes, I understand all of the services that the wellness committee provides. And yes, I understand that I need to reach out to them like if I have a problem. The wellness committee, at least in Alabama, they are really dedicated to helping veterinarians with substance abuse issues come through with their licenses intact now you have to to do what they say you know and that involves a lot of different things but um if it helps at least in Alabama you know if you're faced with reporting someone like your boss the idea that like oh this might end their career that might not necessarily be true as long as they get help and the only way they're going to get help to save their license is if you report them. So I don't know if that's a helpful way to think about it, but...
1: I think so. I think that would make somebody feel more comfortable. Yeah. So the second scenario is, Tiffany is a new kennel
0: assistant who takes her job very seriously. She carefully watches over each pet that she is responsible for and makes sure that they get everything they need. She is meticulous about marking off the report card when they eat or eliminate and documents what makes them happy or unhappy during their stay. If the other employees fail to do the same in a timely manner, she will do their work for them. The others have asked her politely not to do this, but she feels that if she doesn't, the job isn't getting done as perfectly as she feels it should be done. The other employees have complained to the office manager, who feels bad about reprimanding Tiffany because she does such a splendid job. When she does speak with her about it, Tiffany becomes very agitated and seems almost manic about continuing to oversee that everything is handled to her standards. The other employees are completing their jobs in a way that management finds no fault with, but Tiffany vehemently disagrees.
2: Hmm. This one brings up several interesting points, I think. I would be interested to know, is it that the other employees aren't doing things in a timely manner because that would kind of indicate a different problem than Tiffany's kind of overcompensating or wants things to be the way she wants it um, if the management is okay with the way they're doing it. So I would want some clarification about that is that they aren't really stepping up and aren't doing what they need to do and she's taking care of it and they kind of resent her for that because she makes them look bad because I've seen that in certain places or that she's yeah. maybe even hypervigilant and is her overcompensation is causing problems.
0: That's a great question. JJ, do we have any additional information about that particular scenario?
2: Um
1: so the 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 gist that I get is that um, maybe the other employees might miss a couple of uh, times when they take the pet out but not excessively so. And so management is kind of like, well, it's not perfect, but, you know, sometimes that might happen. Whereas for Tiffany, if it is not completed every single time, then it's not right at all. So it's kind of like probably a mixture and the other employees feel like it's making them look bad. They're like, you know, I just made an honest mistake. It wasn't done out of maliciousness, but Tiffany is kind of of the opinion that if it isn't absolutely perfect, then it's wrong.
0: Is it that the animals are not being taken out? Like those tasks aren't being completed or they're not being checked off on the sheet or b- both?
1: The latter. The animals okay. are are taken care of. Okay.
0: So there's no like deficiency in care. It's correct. just like the documentation and... uh. Like, I definitely took that dog out. I definitely gave its meds, but the documentation, like, I failed on that part. Or I didn't document it quickly enough. Correct. Before Tiffany's. And is Tiffany coming behind and repeating those things? Or she's like, I saw this happen, so I'm going to go ahead and mark it off. The latter. The second thing. Okay. So I think all those make a
2: big difference.
1: Mm -hmm. Am I Tiffany? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes.
2: Me too. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. JJ said she related. Uh, I relate as well. So this would I, I have uh, been in recovery from perfectionism for a long, long time. And I have relapses um, on occasion because this this is this is a really challenging situation, you know, because I could imagine being the person who's like, you know, what if you do it, mark it off, do your documentation right. And so if I work somewhere where they were like, eh, it's OK if they don't write it all down, <laughs> I'd be like, uh, no, it's not. I'm going to go if I see it and I've got yeah. time to do it. Why wouldn't I? So I, I I really do empathize with Tiffany. And if she were coming to me as, and saying, "Hey, you know, I I I've, I've actually been talked to about I've got time to do it, the other people aren't. A- apparently my my boss is okay with them not documenting everything." So they're saying they're doing it and we all know that mm-hmm. if it's not documented it didn't happen, right? So I I have a hard time with that. Well, they did it, but they didn't write it down. You got to just believe that they did. Ah. Mm-hmm.
0: legally, if it's not written down, right. it didn't happen. So, you're right.
2: you know, I, I, I get it's tough, but I think what I would probably do, or, or I might do if I were the office manager, I'd try sort of the sandwich strategy where I would, you know, start with a compliment and say, you know, Tiffany, you're doing an amazing job. We're really appreciative of you and really love, you know, your work ethic. But unfortunately, you're work ethic actually is probably enabling everybody to not necessarily step up and do some of these things. So if if you can help me potentially help them by not going behind them and fixing it, I I would like you to focus on your job and focus on what you can control and accept that we'll deal with other people not doing theirs, but you following behind them and doing it for them doesn't help them step up. And it potentially puts you in a place where they don't uh, care for you very much and may cause some tension and dif- and un- um, unease for you here at the practice. So I really feel like you're going to be able to work with me on this and I feel confident that we can solve this problem together. So I would kind of sandwich a compliment on each end and then the feedback in the middle and see if she's able to handle it. You know, the fact that it says she was almost manic. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting term. So, you know, I always hear mental health stuff if I hear the word manic, but if it's just, she just felt very strongly about it, that's not mania. And I would want to kind of maybe if I were the office manager, explore that some with her, why is this so important to her? Is this something she can let go of? But that would probably be the way I would suggest yeah, approaching I've it. I've
1: heard- I've had a um, conversation with uh a, a office manager who who said those exact same things to me. And I just remember feeling like, but no, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And I, I can't not let it not get done. It's just that's just not a thing. And I'm like trying to be like, no, you don't understand. They're not going to do it. And she's like, well, let me handle that if they don't. And I'm like, but it's not getting done. And I had to kind of think about because I know I have issues with if I find myself being overly controlling in some aspect of my life, it usually means that there's something else in my life that's out of control that I cannot do anything for. Yes, correct. I agree. So, like, I mean, I can remember at some of my my worst points in other jobs, like, I, I drove Ben crazy when I, I came home and I'm like, I'm going to organize the closet. And when I mean organize the closet, I mean, I'm like, okay, your your, your your work shirts, they're going to go on a certain color hanger. Your dress pants go on this color. Your jeans go on this color. And if we didn't have the right amount of colors, I made him go to the store to buy more. I mean, it was bad. And he's like, "Um, <laughs> you, you all right there? And I'm like, not really, but just let me do this so that I don't think about the other things that I can't do anything about. And that's where I'm kind of like, I can relate to the manic thing because I'm like, if I can't do what I want to do in this area... I'm going to come home and totally like torpedo something and reorganize it anally <laughs> until it's just completely stupid. So yeah, I, um, I hear you, Tiffany.
2: <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that JJ, cause that's actually a, a pretty classic defense mechanism called displacement. So it's where you hmm. have feelings about one thing, but you basically put the feelings somewhere else. So I don't feel like I can do anything in one place. So I shift it to something else. So I can't control it here. So I hyper control somewhere else. And so, you know, in therapy, that would definitely be something I would look at is, you know, what is it about this that's so important to you? And and what would be the benefit of of letting some of that go and, and not feeling so stressed about everybody not doing it the way you do it? Cause it's there's obviously mm-hmm. lots of thinking errors wrapped up in that, right? And so helping you kind of let go of that and find a different way to conceptualize it and to be at peace when you go to work with, I'm here to do a good job, but I'm not here to do everybody else's. And I think when people can really embrace that, that not not that I don't want to be a part of a team and help other people out if they need it, but I don't want to enable Mm -hmm. people into not doing their job. I don't want to be a part of the problem. So recognizing that by stepping back, I'm actually probably being more helpful. It feels a little paradoxical, but that's actually what it is. If anything's ever going to change, it's going to change because I allowed myself to be uncomfortable and let it not be perfect to allow for some room for change to happen. But if I'm always coming in behind them and fixing everything, then everything stays exactly the same, which keeps me ultimately sets me up to be resentful and or super duper stressed and have terrible relationships with employees at work. And that's probably not what (laughs) Tiffany's shooting for here. (laughs) That would make things worse. (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: One thing that you hit on a little bit, Dana, uh, that I'd like to go back to for a second is if it's a task that is required for the job, but people aren't doing it and management is okay with that, (laughs) why what <laughs> like what it's either a requirement of the job or it's not and so if this is a really important thing i would argue it is documenting the medical care that you provide to patients is obviously super important part of what we do we don't need to treat it in a cavalier fashion you know uh there was a a line in in the scenario that said the other employees are completing their jobs in a way that management finds no fault with So that's interesting, like, you know, it is how much of that is because Tiffany's doing a lot more handholding than what management is aware of would be my other thing. You know, I think that 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 also backs up um, the idea that Tiffany does need to let go a little bit and allow those employees to fail so that they can get better, because if she always does it for them, then they won't ever get better. And if they don't ever get better. Uh, even after they're allowed to fail, then those employees need to not uh, be <laughs> at the job anymore because they're not doing what you're paying them to do. That doesn't make any sense. So I I, I too have a lot of empathy for Tiffany and can really identify with uh, how she feels because I am a very like by the hooks type of person and it, it makes me crazy when, when other people do not feel that way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I'm thinking like, What if we put Tiffany in charge of something where it's, like, ultra important to get details right, and she maybe kind of works on it by herself? Mm. And the thing I was thinking of was, like, Mm. inventory, you know? Tiffany seems like the right person for the job because, you know, you're going to put her in there, and she is not going to half-ass it. She's going to dot every I, cross every T, count every pill, and, like, you're going to know, man, this is done right. (laughs) So I I think she needs to have expanded duties. (laughs) With compensation for them, not not for free, but uh, you need to pay her to do things that are more in her wheelhouse of like, we got to get it 100% right. Yeah, I think that
2: that would help her and the practice. I think that's a super suggestion that a lot of places, even outside of veterinary medicine, just don't do. They don't pay attention to the strengths of their employees. They basically just fill positions. So they they've got a mm. spot. They put people in it. And they don't necessarily think about I mean, I saw this in, in lots of different places that I worked. They don't think about, you know, what's a way to cater to this person's strengths? How can we use their strengths to actually help our practice? And so, you know, rather than potentially running off a great employee because you reprimand her so many times because she's pissing off the other employees, give her in, let her use her energy somewhere that she's, that, that's better suited for her. And that's such a... That's a really great strategy, I think, and and a lot of places just miss it. They, or they, they don't have the time or manpower to do it. You know, they're just are, they're just trying to get the day-to-day stuff done. That's a little bit more of a a luxury, I think, of having a team of people that have been around long enough where you know them well enough to put them in, give them roles that really suit their strengths. But if you can do it, it's a great way to have a team that actually really thrives because they're doing stuff that they're really, really good at and they really enjoy doing.
0: And I think also the office manager should keep in mind that people like Tiffany, who are extremely passionate about a subject, if they don't feel heard about it, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: will become disillusioned, Mm -hmm. potentially, Mm -hmm. and then leave. (laughs) And maybe, I mean, maybe in, in whatever case, that might not be that big of a deal. But like right now, veterinary staff is at a premium. And so especially someone who has those perfectionistic tendencies that, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm partial to that. Like, I would hire for that, honestly. Um, I'd much rather have a perfectionistic employee than someone who's kind of lackadaisical just because of what we do. Not everybody is like me, though. Uh, But be careful to make sure that Tiffany understands that what she does matters. And it's not that you don't care. It's not that I don't care about the pets. It's not that I don't care that this isn't getting done. I think that making sure that you explain it thoroughly, you know, here is my plan to get everybody on board. I've got to grow these employees up a little bit (laughs) while at the same time making sure that everybody is safe and the pets are safe and that everything is documented. And Tiffany, let me handle that. Do not worry. I am not going to allow the the animals to be mistreated or any of those other things. I think a little bit of assurance on that front might help prevent some confusing feelings from a staff member like Tiffany that might think that they just like maybe that the point is being missed.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah you can become resentful kind of quickly mm-hmm. if you're, you know, feel like you're taking on your job and in order for it to be done, taken on other people's. And sometimes, you know, other people are like, oh, you're going to do it? Okay, cool. I'm just not going to do it anymore. And then you're like, well, it has to get done. But now I'm getting resentful because this, you know how to do this. You're not doing it. You're just assuming I'm going to do it. I don't mind doing it every now and then, but now it's become a thing. I don't like being taken advantage of. I'm angry. But at the same time, I'm like, I, or Tiffany, whoever, started doing that. So there's a little bit on them too. It it gets complicated in a hurry, but it, it leads down a path of um, animosity eventually.
2: You know, JJ, that actually um, reminded me of something I talk to clients a lot about is they'll say things like I have to, and I will very quickly point out is that, but, but you don't, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. No one has said, go behind the other employees and fix everything they don't do. Your boss is not asking you to do that. It's not an expectation. You're choosing to because it makes you feel something. You feel beneficial. You feel uh, relieved. You feel purposeful, whatever. But, you know, anytime someone chooses to do something, then they feel resentful. There's a problem. So I'll say, Mm -hmm. you know... If I'm going to choose to do it, then I'm not going to be resentful about it. I'm choosing to because it feels good to do it or it makes sense for me to do it. Or I like all the T's to be crossed and the I's to be dotted. So if everybody else doesn't do it and nobody else cares, then okay, I I can't control that. But if I'm Mm -hmm. going to choose to do it, I, I had, you know, I've talked to. You know, people a lot of times about, well, I have to do this. And then there's like uh, making a decision about moving, for example, say their spouse is being transferred, is, is taking a job somewhere. And they'll say, well, I have to move. And I'm like, well, you, you, technically you don't. You're choosing to move because you want to keep your family together. Um, or you're choosing to move because you want to still live with your husband. You don't want to live in two different states. You've chosen not to have a conversation with him about th- that you would prefer not to move. But, but don't go and do it. And then be mad at him because you made that decision to do it. So, you know, that would that would definitely be an angle I would approach if she came to therapy and talking about this, saying, you know, I have to because nobody else will. I'm like, well, if your boss doesn't expect you to, then I would change that language because choose to is much more empowering. Have to mm-hmm. is uh, obligatory. And generally, that's where resentment comes from. So when we talk like that, mm-hmm. we're going to feel that way. But if I say, you know what, I choose to because it feels nice for me. I, I can relax when I know all that's done. I just, I like, I feel, I like that feeling at the end of the day that I don't have resentment because I'm doing it by choice. Does that make sense? Yes. I like. It's all, it's mental gymnastics for sure, but changing. There's a, a really great book I read not too long ago called The Gift. And the lady talks about empowered language versus kind of victim language. And so she, I don't know if she uses the word victim, but that's the word that comes to mind. But she says things like have to. Should, need to, ought to, versus I get to, or I have the opportunity to, or I choose to, or I have the privilege to, is very much I'm in the driver's seat here. I'm not doing this because of anything other than it makes sense for me to do it. And that, when I changed that language in my own life, it definitely made a huge difference in how I felt about myself and how I felt about other people and my interactions with them.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
2: It's a great book, just if anybody wants to check it out. The lady's name is, uh, the book, psychologist's yeah. name, uh, I shouldn't call her the lady, is uh, <laughs> the lady. that lady that wrote that book. Uh, her name is Edith Eva Eger, E-G-E-R, and she is a 93-year-old psychologist that's still practicing and survived the Holocaust, lost her entire family except her sister. And her memoir, um, The Choice, is a outstanding, um, beautiful book about her experience during World War II and and after the war and and kind of what the ridiculous obstacles this woman overcame. Um, and then the second book she actually wrote last year during the pandemic uh, and published it then um, is called The Gift. And it's a much sh- shorter book, but it's very much about um, still have, you always have a choice. And that um, is a, was a pretty profound read. And I've had several clients read it and thought it was pretty impressive too.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely put uh links to those recommendations in the show notes and on social media.
2: Awesome. Yeah. I like it. Your next scenario is
1: about Mary. Uh Mary has a coworker named Jill that has been a really long time friend as well. Mary's in the middle management position, and at times she has to offer her coworker constructive criticism and coaching. When she attempts to point out a situation where Jill gave a client wrong information over the phone, Jill responds with dramatic statements such as, I'm sorry, I ruined the day by making that incorrect statement on a phone conversation. I'll never call a client again. Or, you're really mad at me, so our friendship must be over. Have a nice life. Mary has tried multiple times to explain that these situations are not that big a deal and the responses Jill gives are not helpful. She's tried different approaches, but keeps getting the same type of response. The only thing that works is if she approaches Mary as a friend and pretends the earlier conversation didn't happen, or if she apologizes and accepts blame for bringing up anything Jill needs to work on. Upper management has been pressuring her to get Jill to make improvements but she's not getting through to Jill at all.
2: Oh, dear. (laughs) Nothing like passive aggressiveness in the workplace. It's super, (laughs) super fun.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was kind of at a loss. I was like, other than to continue to repeat yourself in hopes that one day it could sink in. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to do about that one.
2: What do you think, Dana? I would be really interested in what Mary's multiple attempts were. Now, I'm I'm making an assumption here, but if Mary was born and raised in the South, I'm going to bet her approach is not super assertive. It, it, I just run into very few people who, actually very few women, unfortunately, men are naturally more assertive. We in the South are, are almost bred to be passive aggressive. It is, I think I talked about the book, Not Nice, the, in one of the previous podcasts. Everyone on the planet should read this book. If they have any inkling of people-pleasing, over-apologizing, and being nice, they should totally read it. But I would be interested. If Mary were coming to counseling, I'd want to talk to her about that. And and I might even practice with her how she can have a very assertive conversation. Probably on the spectrum of passive all the way to aggressive, assertive, you know, is kind of uh, in the middle. This is going to be leaning a little towards aggressive, not aggressive, but like, very, very firm conversation, like kind of a cut it out conversation, you know, so I would want to know, so I wouldn't want to say maybe she's already had that. My guess is she hasn't. And I would want to kind of talk about, you know, you know, having Mary be very upfront about this is super frustrating for me. I am you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I've been in middle management b- before and it sucks. It is hard to have upper management far, far away barking down at you saying, here's what you need to do. And then you have your employees who don't ever deal with upper management and you're in the middle and everybody's mad at you. So I I, I empathize with Mary, but I would really want to help her verbalize that like, this is, this is seriously a threat to our friendship. You know, you responding like that is is inappropriate. It's unprofessional. Me giving you feedback is my job. And you responding that way is compromising our professional relationship and our friendship. And so, honestly, I need you to stop or we're going to have there will be consequences to that. You know, then and I might want upper management say, what would you like me to do? Here's what I've done. Here's what I said, especially if she had that very assertive conversation and and Jill kept uh, up with her passive aggressiveness. But, you know, I, this is a, this is a complication of working with friends, unfortunately, sometimes, but I would want to be very strongly communicate that, you know, I, I'm going to keep doing this. And if you continue to respond this way, this, this may very well be the end of our friendship. And I'd like that not to happen. And I imagine Jill or yeah, Jill would be very pouty and not super happy about this feedback. But again, at the end of the day, all I can control is the information I provide people and the way I provide that information. So I would want to see how Mary was doing that.
0: Dana, what do you think about Jill here? Her responses to things are kind of dramatic, it seems like. Maybe dramatic isn't the right word, but it's like you're going to go from being slightly corrected to like now our friendship is over, have a nice life. I ruined the
2: whole day. Yeah, I
0: know if someone did that. I think I would, I would have a hard time like not giggling be like, are you, like, are you being purposely dramatic right, right now? Right. Like,
1: like what, what is happening? Yeah. It makes me wonder. It's like either they've gotten away with this behavior for so long and it's worked for yeah. them. Or is there maybe even some mental health issues going on with Jill? I don't, I was just like, I, I don't know how, wouldn't know how to handle that kind of thing. Cause I'm like, obviously you're going to have to continue to work with this person, whether their friendships mm-hmm. there or not, but, I mean, to me, like, if somebody tells me you have a nice life, I'm inclined to be like, okay, I will. I'll talk to you when I need to, but I'm just going to have a nice life over here now.
0: Yeah, well, but if you're their their boss, exactly. like, that's not going to work. You can't
1: <laughs> do that that way. You're kind of stuck. So it's kind of like, well, how?
2: how yeah.
0: what, what I'm getting at is, I mean, is... <laughs> Is Jill avoidant? Is that what's happening? Like, what is going on with Jill? Oh,
2: I think so. And I think the fact that Mary has recognized that the only time it gets any better is when she caters to that behavior. So, you know, we teach people how to treat us. And so people learn over time that if I throw out catastrophic comments like, oh, I guess our friendship is over forever. they People probably historically have been like, oh, no, 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 no. Please don't be mad. And so they have this passive aggressive dance that just continues to work until somebody says, hey, you just need to stop. So, you know, JJ, you're right. It might be saying, well, that would really be unfortunate if our friendship was over because I gave you some feedback. But if that's if that's what you choose, then I guess I'll talk to you later and I'm going to go back to work. But as her manager, I'm still going to come back and you know give her feedback, maybe even put her on some kind of constructive coaching plan where we meet regularly and talk about this stuff. And it certainly would show up in her annual evaluation because it's just unprofessional behavior. You have to be able to handle feedback and put it into practice and do things differently. And so it very well could be a mental health issue, but it certainly is something that Jill has learned gets her off the hook. So until somebody calls yeah. her on that bullshit, she's going to keep doing it. It's just, it's what we do. We're all like Pavlov's dogs, you know, you you ring a bell and we <laughs> salivate. So it's like we all learn, we're all conditioned until there's a break in that um, conditioning. So Mary's a little bit of the problem because she is, at least sometimes, has catered to it. Yeah. hmm so if
0: like if you're out there and identifying with Mary's situation, your main advice would be to make sure that you look back and say, like, yes, I've had assertive conversations, not beating around the bush, but like, Jill, your behavior X, Y and Z is not appropriate. What I need from you is A, B and C instead. And then to have a follow up about that if it's still not happening.
2: And then if that doesn't work then Jill probably needs to go, right? I would think so because it certainly could create yeah. a workplace that's really uncomfortable. If that's mm-hmm. a pretty routine yeah. if that's pretty routine that she responds that way. What would you what advice would you have for women maybe
0: in particular who hear, hear me make that statement, you know, Jill, you're doing XYZ, not acceptable. I need you to do AB and C instead and have like a visceral uh, anxiety-driven response to to the idea of ever having to say something like that. Are there is there anything that we <laughs> that we can do to help people not be so worried about uh, being perceived as a, a bitch? I guess
2: it's interesting you bring that up that we have a special word to describe women that are assertive, and so I think recognizing that that's some old programming that is a a very old southern script that many of us were raised with, that the idea of what a proper lady acts like. So if you read Not Nice, you'll see that. Like if you, there's a, right at the very front of the book, there's a nice versus not nice. And if you read the nice column, it is very much the catering to other people, making sure no one gets upset at you, never saying anything that might be upsetting to someone else. It's very much keeping the peace basically at your own I really, it really, it, in a way that affects you, not yeah. that it affects anybody else. So some of it's just kind of saying, I'm going to write a new rule for myself that my responsibility is to be kind. And I can be kind because to me, assertiveness is kindness because I am giving someone feedback that they need. I am expecting that they can handle it. I'm not treating them like they're a victim because to me, when I don't tell somebody in a straightforward way, I'm kind of treating them like I don't think they can handle it, that they aren't capable I don't want to treat anybody like that. I want to treat other people like I would want to be treated. So shoot it to me straight. And that's not being blunt. That's another misnomer. People think being blunt's a good thing. No, it's not. Because blunt says, I don't care how you feel about it. I don't care if this hurts your feelings. Being assertive is very empathetic. I am I can imagine this might be hard to hear. So yeah. I'm going to approach it from a, you know, how would I want somebody to talk to me If I um, had done something I didn't need to do or I didn't do it the right way, I would want them to be straightforward, but I'd want them to be kind in their approach with me. So it's not beating around the bush, but it's also not smacking me in the face with it. (laughs) And so, you know, kind of letting go of I am not being a bitch by being straightforward. I'm actually being kind. So some of it's kind of internal script rewriting. There's another really great book, and it's called The Assertiveness Guide for Women. Uh, It was written by Julie Hanks. And it is a, basically a, a book-slash-workbook that helps women walk through scenarios, um, practice what they would say, kind of looking at those scripts that play in their head that say, this is, this is not being nice to people, this is, this is being rude, this is being aggressive. Like things that over and over and over we've heard that a woman that stands up for herself is is something derogatory as opposed to it's something we want to cultivate and nurture in our our girls as they grow up. So that book's really helpful. So that would be something if someone's really struggling with this, I would suggest for them.
0: Yeah, we'll be Mm -hmm. sure to check that out and we'll put that in the show notes as well.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I um, have historically struggled with the most whenever I had to Uh, have a confrontation with someone about something is I mean (laughs) handling their reaction I think and so one of the things that I've had to sort of train myself to do and it's been very difficult for me and I'm still not a hundred percent perfect at it is like reminding myself that no matter how they react I can't control like there's no in the past I've had to confront people about something I had a really hard time because I found myself essentially trying to manage other people's emotions. Like somehow I imagined that there would be some like perfect way to phrase what I needed to say or some sort of perfect like, you know, facial expression or some sort of mannerism that I could adopt that would allow me to say the information I needed to say, to give the feedback I needed to give and have the other person not react poorly to that. Um but then it <laughs> what I have come to to discover in my own therapy is that you don't have any control over how people react to things. <laughs> and so you do your best job. I mean don't be a dick on purpose, but like at the end of the day there's no magic recipe for um Mary to be able to like say some specific words to Jill and have Jill magically not react poorly if she's not going to take the feedback well she probably just won't take it well anyway Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't know that probably is not helpful to the people listening and nervous
2: about this well but But, i I think that (laughs) is helpful lauren because i think that it is about managing expectations it's you know mary thinking about what is my job my job Mm -hmm. is not to make sure jill does jill responds the way i want her to my job is to give jill information My job is to give Jill information in a straightforward, compassionate, assertive way. That's the end of my job. Um, What Jill does with that information is up to Jill. So I accept that she may have a hard time with it. I do not take responsibility for that. So all I can do is give her information. That's really what I always come back to. All I can do is give someone information. What they do with that information is 100% outside of my control. So if I even approach that, if I were Mary and I approached this conversation that I needed to talk to Jill about this problem, and I said, I have to go talk to Jill, I've already put myself in sort of a mindset that doesn't put me in the driver's seat, Mm -hmm. that I'm doing it because it's my obligation or it's my duty. And we generally don't do those things with a whole lot of pep in our step. But if I looked at it and this is a stretch, I get people and be like, oh, what? But if I said I get to talk to Jill about this, this is an opportunity for me to talk to Jill because every time I do these kind of things that are uncomfortable, I get better at it. I wasn't born assertive. I've always been kind of assertive, but it's the more I've done it, the more I've kind of leaned into, I I want, I really embrace this idea of personal responsibility and letting go of things I can't control, the more I've done it, the more it's just kind of become the way I do things. And it's not that I just love confrontations with people. I don't. They're uncomfortable. But I know I can survive discomfort. I've been uncomfortable a lot of times. And so I look forward to, not look forward to, I use those opportunities as a way of practicing a skill of Being more mindful of how I regulate my own emotions when someone's acting like that. Um, How I manage my tone of voice when someone's being passive aggressive, because it makes my eye twitch just a little bit when people Mm -hmm. act like that, especially if they're grown. I'm just like, come on. (laughs) So it's a way for me to practice that stuff, to manage my face, to watch my tone of voice, to to check in and see, wow, this is kind of touching on a little bit of a defensive nerve inside of me. What's that about? Because it's probably a thinking airplane in my head. So if I say that, this is an opportunity that I have to to engage with Jill rather than, oh, I have to do it and it really sucks. It just puts me in a whole different headspace going into it. Even if it's just a little bit better headspace, we're improving our odds a little bit without for outcomes. I like it. Me
0: too. Okay. The next scenario we have is Grace has a coworker named Alex that she is very worried about. She has noted that Alex seems very down. He doesn't participate in conversations. He doesn't go to lunch with the group like he used to, and he seems very sad. When she tries to talk to him, he either brushes her off or says things like, You all are better off without me anyway. She also knows that he is very anti-therapy. He has said in the past that he thinks mental health is not a thing, and it's for weak people that can't solve their own problems. She is very worried but has no idea how to help him.
1: I mean, from my standpoint, I don't really know how to help somebody that, because my first instinct would be to recommend, hey, maybe you need to talk to somebody, but if he's very much like, that's not a thing, that doesn't work, if I feel like I'd be talking to a deaf ear, but I also wonder like about the whole nothing will ever get better issue, like is that the depression or a thinking disorder disorder? Learned behavior. I mean, there's a lot of unpacking on that one.
0: So, Dana, what sorts of strategies um, would you suggest first off for for someone that sort of doesn't believe in in mental health counseling?
2: Well, you know, it's unfortunate that we still in 2021 are dealing with that. I think we've we've done a lot to break through the stigma about mental health and about seeking help, but we still have some work to do, and so. You know, if I'm, you know, ever working with someone who, like in this case, Grace, you know, she's got a co-worker. Obviously, there's a limit to what she, you know, can control. But I think I would suggest that she, um, you know, if she's ever been to counseling, that maybe she shares that experience with him or she knows someone that did. Obviously, if you know someone that uh, is a counselor and you really uh, can recommend them, just saying, you know, what do you think about just going and trying it out? Just going maybe for... A couple of sessions depending on her relationship with him you know if she knows him really well she might say you know if you go a few times and you don't like it then don't go back because the goal the hope is that they'll go they'll get connected and they'll want to keep going i have a, a a client right now actually it was uh this person's very first time coming to counseling was very reluctant and has really bought in after at the beginning verbalizing i kind of think counseling sort of you know. Not, he didn't say crock of shit, but that was really kind of what he communicated. It's like <laughs> well, it's just, it seems kind of woo woo, you know. And yeah. and I said, hey, I, I I respect that, but you got through the door, you made it. And once once people start talking, it's remarkable how that process can just be so cathartic, even before you really start solving any problems. You know, just having a, a outside person to put those things out there with and to feel safe and supported can really make a big difference. So you know, maybe she encourages him to just go give it a try. I think sometimes people, you know, might not be willing to go to counseling, but even saying, here's a, uh, like around here, we've got a crisis support line, which people can text and get support. So, you know, if I work with clients that have a coworker that that they're real concerned about, they've seen a shift in their behavior, they don't seem to be doing very well they've suggested counseling, they've, they've talked about their own experience with counseling, they've really tried to decrease the stigma about it, they've done everything they know to do, then one of the things I'll say is, why don't you give them the crisis line number that's 24 hours and they can text anytime, night or day, and they'll get a response within five minutes. And sometimes just having that person to text with it has enough degrees of separation from counseling, but it's still support can be real helpful to to even get them started. Cause even sometimes that person on the other end of the text uh, might be able to say, you know, I, I really think it might be helpful for you. And hearing it from that person, that objective person might be enough to kind of tip them over the edge into going and trying out counseling. That has been part of sort of the breaking down the stigma is having more uh, better access to mental health services and and mental health services maybe are a little less traditional. So texting support, online therapy, you know versus always just in person one on one, so you know mm-hmm. I think we're doing a good job of maybe reaching people from different avenues, well, Dana, to me, and
0: I know like it, we we always have to be careful about like trying to give someone a diagnosis or whatever, but I mean, it sounds like Alex might be depressed based on the changes that his coworker is seeing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that the coworker can do to sort of? Help Alex th- through that at all?
2: You know this one's tough because you, you you can't really assume responsibility for someone else's mental health, and so it's really hard when you see someone struggling but they don't seem to be willing to do anything about it, and that may be the situation Grace is in. So it's her knowing I'm, uh, you know, when I see him, I ask him how he's doing. I I listen if he needs to talk, but there's there is a line where she has to be careful because she's not his therapist. Um, she can't be on call for him 24 seven, you know, she can answer the phone when she can and respond when she can, but she has to have her own life and have her own boundaries. Um, and she doesn't also want to, you know, for him to feel like, oh, I've got grace. I don't need a therapist if he really Mm -hmm. is struggling with depression. So it's a fine line of providing support, but being careful that it doesn't become the be all end all. And he gets very dependent on her because that wouldn't really be healthy for either one of them. So, you know, I think just, you know, making sure she checks in with him, offers him these resources, ask him if he's accessed them when he says he's having a hard time, you know, saying, hey, you know, did you decide to follow up with the counselor or, you know, have you talked to your primary care doctor? You know, maybe he feels more comfortable doing that. Just let your doctor know what how you're feeling and see mm-hmm. if your doctor thinks there's anything going on, you know, because... Sometimes it's depression uh, from a clinical sense. Sometimes it's something physical going on that feels like depression. So it could be, you know, this, that he needs a physical and needs to have some labs run to see if, you know, uh, all, all his blood levels are what they're supposed to be. And he's, vitamins are what they're supposed to be. So, you know, just saying, hey, could you go talk to your PCP and see what your doctor says might feel like a, a backdoor approach to getting some help too. but that's that's really probably all Grace can do, and that's tough. When you see someone and you're really concerned they're just not doing great, uh, you know, she might choose to talk to, like, the the office manager or the HR director um, and just say, I, I need, maybe somebody else can reach out and and potentially even, depending on his performance at work, suggest that it may become, like, a part of, the, if the clinic has an EAP or there's a Counselor that they can refer him to for a few sessions just to make sure he's stable. You know, you just want to feel like you've done everything you can at the end of the day, and then you accept that he's going to have to access those resources. I can't, you can lead a horse to water, so to speak, but, you know, I can't make him take a drink. So, one other thing that Grace could
0: consider is to use some of the resources that the AVMA has provided this year. We've talked a little bit about it before on the podcast, but just to reiterate, the AVMA is providing. Completely free QPR suicide prevention training and QPR stands for question, persuade and refer. Uh, It's also known as gatekeeper training, and it teaches people without professional mental health backgrounds how to recognize the signs that someone might be considering something like suicide, how to establish a dialogue and how to guide the person to seek professional help. And it's not a substitute for professional assistance, but it's more like a tool that you can use to try to help intervene. And this is something that has been provided by the AVMA, AVMA Life, and AVMA PLIT insurance. And that is completely free for every single person that works in a veterinary hospital in any capacity. And you can find the link to the training on the AVMA.org website.
2: That sounds like an amazing resource.
0: Yeah. I mean, very groundbreaking. I feel like for our profession, like I've never seen something like that offered before. I was really excited about it.
2: Well, and hopefully, you know, the more people that get that training, they'll realize, you know, we're still kind of breaking through a misnomer that if you talk to someone about suicide, that they're go- that will make them contemplate it. Oh, so it's like, I don't want to bring it up because they might, that might give them some idea. And we just realized that's just not true. You know, so saying, Hey, I'm really concerned about you. Or when you say things like, We'd be better off without you, I don't, I really need to know what you mean by that because that's really disturbing to me. We wouldn't be better off without you. You know, if you, you know, being having upfront conversations about what those thinly veiled comments mean and sometimes even straight, you know, asking, do you ever think about ending your life? Because that that is something we need to talk about and we need to to shine the light on, not try to keep it covered up because we're afraid of it. That's much better prevention that way.
0: It sounds like if you straight up ask someone, "Hey, you're not, you know, you are you really truly thinking about uh, you know, harming yourself or something that that's not going to then cause them to harm themselves in any way that uh, it's better to Just straight up ask and rather than ignoring the potential problem.
2: Because I think if if I if my gut kind of says that I've seen this significant decline, they're making these kind of veiled comments, I would rather be safe than sorry. I'd rather say, you know, that's that's like the third time today you've said something about not being here or not being worth anything. And that really makes me concerned. You're thinking about hurting yourself. Is that something that's on your mind? So then if he says, yeah, I sometimes think about that, then I know I need to get extra help. This is I am out of my league at this point. And that's when I need to get someone else involved. Um, so that there can be some additional support provided. But if I just kind of blow it off and I'm like, oh, he didn't mean it. And then he does act on that, I'm I'm that's something I'm living with the rest of my life. I haven't done everything I possibly could do. So, you know, I, I just air more on let's be upfront about this stuff so that we can we can act accordingly rather than just, you know, hope it doesn't mean anything and keep our fingers crossed that, you know, it's all going to be all right. If he is just making some flippant comment, he's going to say something like, no, God, I've never killed myself. What? When the I, shit I say stuff like that all the time, you know, no, I'm not depressed. I have just hadn't gotten any sleep like there'll be something that I can say, OK, well. It really bothers me when you say stuff like that, because it makes me concerned. I hope you would tell me if you were feeling that way. You know, mm-hmm. we're still having a good conversation. Either don't make flippant comments like that, or if you are feeling that way, let's let's get you some help. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, it's time to wrap up our episode. Dana, thank you so much for joining
0: us today. We really appreciate it. And I know everybody's going to be really excited to uh, have you back on the podcast again.
2: Thanks. Yes. Ooh, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: You are our our most requested uh, speaker. That's
2: really nice to hear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. If you have stories, questions, uh, submissions for the advice column or anything else that you'd like for us to read, please send it via email to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. Do not tell me in person or text me about it or send me a Facebook (laughs) message because I forget those things. I really need you to email, (laughs) to email them to me.
1: (laughs) And you can find us on social media. Um, We're on Facebook and Instagram and it's at introvets.
0: And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. You can find our 2021 listener survey at introvets.com slash survey. We'd really appreciate it if everyone filled it out for us. Yes, do it.